one of the highest accolades that my mother could give to anybody was that they were somebody that she could go into the jungle with. <laughs> now, my mother never wanted to go into the jungle, nor did she ever go into the jungle, and this was years before I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. But I feel sure that had she met Jonathan, she would have said that he was somebody she could go into the jungle with. So Saul deals with this Philistine emergency by sitting under a tree. He's forgotten God's promises and purposes for Israel. Like the 10 spies that we heard about uh, earlier this month, he's looking at the circumstances, but not at God. He's just waiting to see what the Philistines will do, but not Jonathan. So what do we find out about Jonathan from these verses? And perhaps as we go through these findings, these points, we could check ourselves against each one and ask, how much am I like Jonathan? Now, those of you who know me well will know that I love alliteration. It helps me to fix the points in my mind, and it may also help you to remember those points, maybe up to lunchtime and maybe even beyond. So all the following points begin with an S, and I did have well over 20, but I wanted us all to get home for Christmas. So, First of all, Jonathan was sensitive to the Lord and to his spirit. And I sense from this that Jonathan is waiting on the Lord. He wants to know what God wants him to do. He has discerned that if he just steps out in faith and obedience, God will direct the rest. And Jonathan is also sensitive to people. Do you notice he invites his armor bearer? come, let's go, rather than commands him. And he knows that his father is not in tune with the spirit, and so he doesn't tell him his plans because he knows that Saul will forbid them. So if we look at verse 6, it tells us a lot about Jonathan and the God he believes in. He says, first of all, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Jonathan knew that the Lord was sovereign. He isn't expressing doubt here. When he says perhaps, it's part of his faith. He is affirming the power and the freedom of the Lord to act how he, Yahweh, chooses. You know, faith doesn't dictate to God. Who knows what this wonderful sovereign God may be delighted to do against this enemy at this particular time. In verse 6, we also read... Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few warriors. So Jonathan knows that the Lord is supremely strong. Nothing can hinder the Lord. He knows that he's saviour. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. He knows that Yahweh alone can turn what at present seems like an overwhelming defeat into an amazing victory. And he knows the scriptures. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few warriors. And commentators say that Jonathan is thinking of the story of Gideon defeating the Midianites with just 300 men, the story that we heard from Lisa last week. And Jonathan and his armor bearer are trusting in the many promises given by God through Moses to Israel in the law, one of which is Deuteronomy 7.23, do not be terrified by the army, by your enemy, for the Lord your God who is among you 
is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion. And we saw that fulfilled as the account continued. So Jonathan and his armor bearer step out. The two or three mile route is well nigh impassable. Um, and these two cliffs are still identifiable today. And the terrain is treacherous. So he has to climb down that first steep cliff across the wadi and climb up the opposite one to where the Philistines have a small garrison of soldiers and then overcome them. This is ignoring all the rules of military discipline and of reason. Yet Jonathan senses that this is where the Lord is leading him. Jonathan says to his companion in verse 10, that if the Philistines come up to us, that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Jonathan knows the Lord sees and speaks and gives signs. This is not like Gideon wanting a sign to bolster his faith. Jonathan already has the faith that is needed to defeat the enemy, but he wants to know how the Lord wants him to attack. All he needs is to hear that Philistine invitation, come up to us, and he seizes the opportunity the Lord is giving him, knowing that this will bring victory. And you may have noticed that Jonathan speaks easily and naturally about the Lord. Every time it's recorded that Jonathan speaks and mentions him in 1 Samuel, he doesn't call him God. He calls him by the personal name that God revealed to his people, Yahweh, I am, the self-sufficient God, the God who makes and keeps his covenant. Jonathan has a personal relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. So that's Jonathan, a young man of immense courage, faith, vision, an inspiring leader who knows the Lord, listens to him, obeys him, and trusts his word. He's caught God's vision for what Israel was meant to be, a blazing light leading those in the darkness of paganism around them into faith in the living God. As we read this and think about Jonathan, we think, wow, he'd make a really great king. Why can't he be the next king? Why has God rejected the tribe of Benjamin and the family line of Saul? Surely Jonathan could replace him and lead Israel to love and serve Yahweh. Well, that brings us back to the point that was made earlier. Jonathan knew the Lord as sovereign. And he knew that if you affirm him as your sovereign, then there are several consequences. Jonathan knew he must submit to God's sovereignty. He knew he must be in service to God's sovereignty. And he later comes to understand that he must always be second in God's plans for Israel. Now we can only imagine the cost to this outstanding young man as he met David maybe some 15 years later and is told or realizes, scripture doesn't record this, that David, his best friend, is going to be the next king and not himself. And as one commentator says, 
His father, Saul, would only ever consent to playing lead violin. But Jonathan early on accepted oh so graciously that he would always be playing second fiddle. But you know, Jonathan so believes and trusts in God's sovereign plan that he cuts a covenant with David in which he confers on him his own royal robe and armor to signify that he is giving him his royal status and strength, pledging that your battle is my battle. I will fight for, defend and protect you. Do you notice there's no bitterness, no jealousy or complaint that he's hard done by. From then on, this gifted and extraordinary man never wavered from the steps that he'd taken to submit to God's authority and his sacrifice to be second. So we come back to that first reading, if you can remember that far back, where David is afraid and hiding from Saul. And he's not just afraid of Saul. If he can't even trust those people of Caleb, his own tribe, who can he trust? Why is God letting this happen? What about his promise that David would be king? Can he even trust God? Everything about him is shifting sand. He's a wanted man, hiding in caves, now knowing that, Paul, that King Saul is personally in charge of his destruction. But into this scene steps his best friend, Jonathan. Now, I just want us to think about what Jonathan could have done and could have said and what we might do in the same circumstances. So he could have arrived and said, oh, Jonathan, David, the journey that I've had here, oh, the heat, the rocks, the thorns, look, at, I'm bruised everywhere, look at the thorns, it's dreadful. How could you have been in this place? It's taken me so long to find you. I've had to look over my shoulder all the time to see if anybody was following me. <laughs> you think you've got it hard. You should live with my father. And then he could spend the next few hours telling David about his father's terrible outbursts of temper and ignored David's fears. Or he could have said, especially if he was a 21st century Jonathan, David, you need to find the inner king in you. Find the real you. Find your own truth and falsify David's fears. He could have said, oh, David, come on, this isn't like you. You killed Goliath. What's happened to you? Get a grip of yourself. Everything's going to work out fine. And he could have belittled David's feelings. Or he could have sat and wallowed with David, agreeing about the unfairness of it all and bolstering David's fears. But no, Jonathan's prime purpose is to put David's hand into the hand of God. And he can do that because he himself has done it. He's known and tested the character of God. He knows that the Lord has his hand already extended out to David. Jonathan can share his experience and knowledge of the Lord with his friend. So using all that he knows of the Lord, let's see how he puts David's hand into the hand of God. He helps him practically. I've gone on to P's here, not S's. 
he helps him practically. He is there in person. He hasn't sent a message or a messenger. He's prepared to step out of his comfort zone, undergo this hazardous journey and risk his own life. There is considerable personal cost involved for him. His first priority is to take David into Yahweh's presence, to help David to put his hand into God's hand, to find strength in the Lord. For all the comfort that Jonathan's presence brings, he knows that it can't possibly match the abiding living encouragement of God's presence that a personal relationship with Yahweh will bring. He knows that David has to let go of all that he's gripping, that fear, the sense of rejection and his weakness, the lack of control, in order to put his hand into God's and receive his peace, God's acceptance and strength. You see, Jonathan wants him to face his doubts and fears, and then, as Lisa said a couple of weeks ago, see how much bigger Yahweh is than all of them. So he commands him, don't be afraid. There are over 200 identical commands in the Bible, and each one is accompanied by the reason why we're not to be afraid, and it's the same here. He says to David, don't be afraid, because God is protecting you. My father will not lay a hand on you. He says to David, you don't need to be afraid because he reminds him of God's promises in scripture and to David personally, that they're certain and trustworthy. You will be king. And he knows the power of God to do this. He leads David into the Lord's purposes. They're perfect. You will be king and I will be second to you. And as proof of this certainty, they renew the covenant, the pledges made before God, that Jonathan would be second to David and that David would protect and provide for Jonathan's family and descendants. The interesting thing is that was kept. And when the, nations, when the nation of Israel divided in two, it was Judah and the other 10, but Judah was actually Judah and Benjamin because David had incorporated the family of Benjamin into his family. He kept that promise. And I'm sure that Jonathan prayed with David after making this covenant. And sadly, this is their last recorded meeting because Jonathan would soon be killed in the Battle of Mount Gilboa. Soon after Jonathan left, David heard that the people of Ziph, where he was staying, had betrayed him to Saul, and he has to flee again. Without that ministry from Jonathan, would that extra betrayal have been more than David could bear? How necessary it was for him at this time to have the faithful ones standing with him hand in hand amidst all those infidelities around him. David wrote Psalm 54 at this very time of betrayal in which he proclaims, surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. He's able to praise God, even in the midst of this catastrophe. And I believe it's because Jonathan had put David's hand into the hand of God, had strengthened him in the Lord, that David was able to proclaim that. 
He never forgot that hand. In his last recorded prayer as King of Israel, some 40 years later, David pronounces, in your hands, O Yahweh, are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. So where do we see God in all of this? Well, as Martin said, all that Jonathan believed about God is true. And all that David proclaims about God is true. His character and his miraculous intervention on behalf of his people are clearly seen throughout that account in 1 Samuel 14. And in chapter 23, we see his omniscience, his impeccable timing in sending Jonathan to David at just the right moment. He knew that David was fearful. He knew that David was anxious. He knew that David doubted. And he loved him and wanted to bring him out of that situation. Throughout David's travels, we see God's protection, his faithfulness, and his love for David. And did you notice that the Lord enables David to escape Saul, but he ensures that David never escapes the shelter of the Most High? What a wonderful God we have. In Jonathan, we see the foreshadowing of one greater than Jonathan, Jesus, our true and never-failing friend. And over a thousand years later, Paul was able to write to Timothy, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. And he still does today. So what does this mean for us? What should we be doing? in the light of this? Well, I can think of no greater privilege than to put somebody's hand into the hand of God. We can have that same ministry as Jonathan, being practical, but also leading people into God's presence and into a personal relationship with him, leading them into his promises, his pardon, his protection, his provision and peace, his love, praying with them, showing and sharing with them the truth in scriptures. And you know, we can do this not just for our best friend or family members, not just for fellow believers, but for everyone, for people at the bus stop, for people in the supermarket queue, for your next door neighbor over the fence, wherever you are, not just for people in trouble, but for those who are content and feel that they don't need the Lord at all. However, to be like Jonathan, we too need to have encountered the bigness of God and to have put our hand in his hand. We need to be prepared to come out of our comfort zone, to expect personal cost and to embrace that sacrifice of being second. Our hands were created to fit into the hands of our creator and to walk with him, going where he directs for his glory and for our safety. And once we've placed our hands in his, he promises that no one can snatch them out of it. Now, the pastoral team here at Christchurch do this ministry wonderfully, but we don't need to leave it to them. If, like Jonathan, we trust in the one who saves and have made him sovereign, we too can minister. 
Now, during the pandemic, it's been hard to meet with people in person and put their hand into the hand of God. But many have been able to do this via text, email, letter, or even the old analog landline. And I know that the feeling of inertia is real amongst many of us, myself included, and that I, I know for one, could have done so much more during the last 16 months of this ministry. But as we come out of the restrictions, let's come afresh to it. Let's pray that we will be sensitive to the Lord and to the people we encounter, to listen to his spirit speaking to us through scripture, see where he's leading us, where he's working, and to lead each person into the presence of God. Jonathan's name means gift of God. So let's be a Jonathan to those we meet. But we need to remember that we have to be willing in these encounters to play second fiddle to the Lord and to the other person.